Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elchison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Adam. Uh, And this week, we had a pretty exciting uh, conversation later on in the episode all about data privacy, and we're going to go deep into targeting uh, and measurement uh, and really nerd out about media. Uh, But before that, you know, Adam, we we have the news of this week. Uh, We have an Apple event to talk about. Uh, Are you ready to dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, On Tuesday, uh, Apple had their iPhone event. Uh, It was about an hour long, uh, and so these events seem to get shorter and shorter. Uh, which is pretty exciting. Makes it easier for us to consume it. Um, but what were the what were the headlines, Adam? Yeah, I mean the big headline, of course, is uh, is the iPhone um, coming a little later this year than than normal. But that was expected uh, because of uh, COVID manufacturing uh, issues. It seems right. Uh, but uh, this is the first year where we have at this uh, at this event four new flagship iPhones. Um, so last year we had three flagships. This year we have four. Don't forget, they also announced the SE in the spring. So the 2020 is officially a year where there were five new iPhones uh, released. Um, but uh, the ones that were announced uh, this week, we have the iPhone 12, the iPhone 12 Pro in the middle of the line, and then the mini uh, below the iPhone 12, and at the top of the line, the iPhone 12 Pro Max. Um, so they added a, a, a smaller sized iPhone uh, to the iPhone lineup. Um, the other notable thing is that all four of these models are uh, 5G. And a couple of other cool things that were part of these phones, they all support a new MagSafe charging solution on yep. the back of the phone that uses magnets to align uh, a wireless charger uh, to them. Um, and the MagSafe functionality will spawn an entire ecosystem of other accessories because Apple is also introducing MagSafe cases, MagSafe wallets, MagSafe pouches. Um, we're going to see MagSafe car mounts from other manufacturers. So uh, this is uh, MagSafe. MagSafe is, MagSafe uh, is where here. all the new iPhone accessories are probably <laughs> going to sprout up. Um, and you know, I think MagSafe is notable also because we are expecting sometime in the near future to have an iPhone that is that doesn't have any ports at all on it. So these iPhones still have a lightning port on them, uh, no USB-C. The mm-hmm. rumor is that sometime in the next few years, that port just disappears. And that's why they're not transitioning the iPhone to, uh, USB-C. to USB-C. Is that, oh, and, and with, with MagSafe, that seems uh, pretty likely, right? Because we now have a higher speed uh, charging solution. MagSafe eventually could also support data as well. So right. um, Huh. You know, I think that the MagSafe is actually a pretty major new upgrade as well. Right. And then lastly, on the on the Pro model phones, uh, they also are have added a LiDAR sensor, um, which is something we saw in the iPad Pros that came out last spring. Um, and the LiDAR sensor is uh, primarily going to be used for enhancing the augmented reality features of the devices. Mm-hmm. Um, it also helps with, with the camera for autofocus in low light conditions. Um, but I think the big interesting thing there is it does make augmented reality more precise and it is faster to do things like scan your room before you have to uh before when you're placing digital objects into the uh into the view absolutely Overall, my uh, well, one, uh, if you didn't view the uh, listeners, the the iPhone event, um, I think 5G was probably mentioned, what, a thousand <laughs> times or something like that. They made it very clear that the big selling point for all these phones this year was 5G. But 
the use case consumer use case for 5g seems to be still missing it seems like for it seems like apple doesn't even know what they're gonna do with it it's just like faster speed for question mark for for what exactly yeah, I, the the uh, you know their apple got a lot of flack for not including 5g in last year's iphones even <laughs> which is crazy to 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 think back to that time but uh at that point 5g wasn't ready at this point it's good that they're adding it obviously you know, when you buy a new phone, having fi- having 5G in it future-proofs it a bit. Yep. But as of right now, um, even if we were leaving our houses, which a lot of us aren't, um, 5G is not uh, really going to do a lot other than be slightly faster 4G for most people. Right. Um, there, there are certain varieties of 5G, Verizon's millimeter wave, which they talked a lot about, oh. which is are super, super fast, um, but it's very limited in its availability. And even in places where it's available, you have to be standing, not only standing in the right place, but facing in the right direction to get those super <laughs> fast speeds. So, uh, you know, they, they were talking that up a lot during the event. I'm skeptical that uh, millimeter wave 5G is going to be something that, you know, more than a tiny, tiny fraction of Americans uh, right. experience even in, in, the, in, the next, uh, in the next year. But aside from the phones, they also talked about the HomePod Mini. Uh, and so this is a new HomePod that seems to compete, I would say, with the Alexa smart speaker and the Google uh, smart speaker as well. That seemed to me, it seems like this is Apple's new play into the smart home to kind of get uh, Siri as your always-on home assistant to control your smart home. Uh, and then, of course, you know, play music from room to room. Yeah, the, you know, the HomePod mini, it, it, the, the regular HomePod, the suggested retail price is $300. You can very often find it for $200. The HomePod mini starts at $100 or $99. Um, I think that at $99, they it will definitely expand the uh, addressable market. Um, I'm sure that these sound better than the you know $30 Echo Dots. Um, so yeah, the, the super cheap um, Amazon and, and Google products obviously are not going to sound as good as a $100 speaker. Uh, but I think that in order to get these devices and to get Siri into every room of your house, I think that uh, the price needs to come down a little bit. Now, if we see uh, the HomePod mini have the same sort of, uh, you know, availability of being on sale as the regular HomePod, where we see a $70 price point, or maybe even a $50 price point, if you can find it on sale at, at, you know, Best Buy or Target, um, I think they'll sell a lot of them at that point. Um, Apple did a very good job of pitching this as, we know, like they didn't say we know there are other cheaper options, but it was sort of implied. Everybody knows there are cheaper options. Um, but if you have an iPhone, this is the best device for you because it fits in our ecosystem. Um, they, you know, they talked a lot um, about uh, things like passing music between your phone and your HomePod. They showed off a new intercom feature, which, again, every, all of these systems have an intercom. But what Apple's intercom can do is it can also send messages to people who might have their AirPods in. It can send an audio message to them. Uh, it can send uh, audio messages to people on their iPhone or their Apple Watch if they're outside of the home. So they are leveraging that ecosystem to try to you know make this position this product as the best choice for iPhone users. That sums up the the Apple event that happened this week. But Adam, when we look at this from a marketing angle, like what does this all mean for our for our brands. Um, what are some takeaways for them to kind of get thinking about as this new technology starts to roll out? Yeah, I think, you know, for 5G, again, this is mostly faster, but 
Faster can mean different in terms of the kind of content that you're delivering. This means, you know, super high quality video assets, of course, but also it means that we can start looking at uh, delivering more 3D assets over mobile. Um, not, don't be afraid to push, you know, larger larger pieces of content, whether that's, you know, in content or in an ad unit. Um, our One of our, our favorite partners for 3D assets, Sketchfab, they were actually featured very, very briefly in one of the videos that Apple showed off. Um, that allows you to uh, host and, and download 3D assets either you know on your own site or via an ad unit. Um, so you know that's the kind of thing that um, will start to be possible for large swaths of the American public, uh, and you you know you will be able to reach those people with more engaging content that way. Yeah, we're banging the drum, everybody. We said it before. We'll say it again. Get your 3D assets ready. And if you're looking for more insights and analysis uh, on the products that were announced and uh, additional brand implications, you can check out our Medium website where our very own Richard Yao has written up some additional thoughts on the event and its uh, implications for brands and marketers. So definitely go check that out. That is going to wrap up this week's news. Uh, We're going to head on now into our interview portion of the show. Hello, uh, listeners, and welcome to this week's interview portion of the episode. Uh, this week, Ariel Garcia's UM's Chief Privacy Officer is back, uh, as well as David Mahalik, the SVP of Digital Strategy here at UM. Uh, and today, we'll be taking a closer look at how this increased consumer interest in data privacy is really impacting the media and advertising landscape. So with that, Ariel and David, welcome to Floor 9. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm super excited to have you both on uh, this week. And I think we should just dive right into the first question here. So, Ariel, stemming off of last week, our conversation two weeks ago, uh, can you just set the stage for us? You know, how did we how did we get here? Really, how has this increase in consumer attention on data privacy been a a driver for what we are now calling the cookieless future? Sure. Um, so, I think you know, as as we talked about last time, the uh, regulatory and legislative landscape continues to shift. But the one thing that is kind of happening everywhere is uh, I- identifiers, unique identifiers, cookies included, as well as the other IDs that we use in advertising um, for audience activation, for measurement, for optimization, uh, those are all personal information or personal data now. And while they might be regulated differently, opt-in versus opt-out, they're they're still regulated. And so while there were already uh, efforts for some time now uh, to to give more choice to, to people, I think that shift where these IDs, which we didn't used to think of as personal information back when we were still using the term PII, um, now they are personal and now they're regulated. Uh, And I think notably uh, to that point, um, some of our big tech companies like Apple have been at the forefront of data privacy and consumer privacy. uh, And their recent announcement of iOS 14 uh, seems to have caused a stir in the uh, market here around what we can and cannot do with some of these unique identifiers. Uh, Notably, it seems like Apple had announced iPhone users will be asking for consent to actually share their unique identifier that we as advertisers like rely on for, for mobile-based advertising. Um, and I think that's just one example. Uh, but really, at the core of this are, are cookies. And David, I know this might sound uh, kind of funny that we're talking about cookies, but like, can you just give us a little background on cookies in case anybody doesn't really know what they are? Uh, and why, why are they so important to the media and advertising landscape specifically? Like, What do we use them for? 
Yeah, absolutely. So cookies just in general are a simple piece of code that's placed on your computer. And what it's doing is it's identifying uh, your browser and computer specifically, and they get broken out into different categories like first party and third party cookies. A first party cookie is going to be the cookie that is identified with the site that you're visiting. So mm -hmm. if I go to yahoo.com, my cookie, if it's first party, is going to be yahoo.com. And that domain is going to be persistent within the cookie that I visited and the website I'm interacting with. A third party cookie is going to also live Within, within Yahoo. Um, however, it's going to have a different domain. It won't be a, a, a domain like yahoo.com. It'll be something like Blue Kai that I may not necessarily recognize from my browsing experience. And the big mm -hmm. difference here is that a first party cookie is incredibly helpful for personalization of a website usage, whether it's something like Yahoo where it's storing my uh, login information mm -hmm. and helping me navigate the site or maybe for an advertiser or, or uh, a site like BMW, it's helping me understand where I left off in the purchase history. So it's storing the type of car I was shopping and the color of the car. These first party connections allow personalization that for the most part, I feel like web users are used to and expect from their browsing experience. A third party cookie, again, is not something I may not, I may necessarily recognize, but it, it's tracking my behaviors across multiple sites. It's basically collecting a way for publishers uh, and advertisers to monetize my information um, off-site, off the sites that I'm browsing, and connect me to other audience pools. And so it's become like this transactional currency, if you will, um, not only for the brands that I want to engage with, but for brands I may not even know I'm engaging with as I navigate um, the web. And so I think that's an important distinction uh, because when we start to talk about the cookie-less future and we kind of loop this into this idea of data privacy and this consumer concern around that, it seems like a lot of people are more focused on the third-party cookies versus those first-party cookies because those first-party cookies provide a valuable service to um, a user when they're browsing. For example, like if I if Google didn't store my passwords, forget about it. I wouldn't be able to log into any of my <laughs> accounts or whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that, like that's an important distinction that maybe uh, when we're going through this conversation, a lot of people haven't thought about yet or just because it seems like to me that like, cookies are just labeled blankly as they track you uh, and then they sell your data without your consent. It seems like that seems like what the conversation is in the market. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is that, Am I off base here? That's exactly right. Slash is in the process of evolving. So um, last year, I believe in October in Europe, there was a decision by the European Court of Justice um, that spoke specifically to cookies and the type of consent that's required. And on the heels of that, a lot of the local regulators have put forth additional guidance. And we're really getting to a place where um, not only is it is it not enough to have blanket cookie consent um, yep. from a regulatory perspective, but for your brand, you're, you're probably not going to benefit from, from that as much as you would if you had that level of specificity built into your systems. Like, okay, right. I'm good with measurement. I'm not good with um, behavioral targeting. You know, right. So I think that level of choice being expected both from a regulator's perspective as well as from a consumer's perspective is changing now. And, and mm -hmm. so especially as we 
move towards some of these product changes, there is um, becoming greater prevalence of that discussion around the distinction between first and third party cookies and, and what is, you know, the right way to get consent within each. Yeah. It seems like that banner at, at the bottom of, of, of every website is about to get a lot more complex because <laughs> right now it says, you know, accept all. And that includes both first party and third party. Again, that, that's a very important distinction. Uh, so I think, you know, understanding and, and figuring out how those cookies differentiate uh, and the services like they provide are super valuable uh, when, you know, legislators and even consumers are thinking through uh, these different parts of the kind of process. So David, as you were talking, one of the areas that you were saying that third-party cookies are used for is targeting. And as advertisers, we're big into targeting. You know, We want to make sure that we're hitting our consumer at the right place at the right time. Can you just go a little deeper on impact that we're going to see uh, on targeting as we start to see this idea of the cookie-less future? Yeah, so uh, targeting is definitely impacted at every stage of the journey. So you have retargeting, which the majority of retargeting uh, pixels are going to be a third-party uh, type of cookie. And what you have is the shift of looking for ways to navigate around that. So, you know, Google Analytics is common as one way that you can move away from retargeting being third party. The other way, uh, you, the other areas of impact is behavioral targeting, which I kind of talked about earlier, which is this mm-hmm. classification based on the behaviors and the way I navigate the web or the things that potentially are in my email account and, and the contextual Excellent. nature of those that are built into this idea of behavioral targeting. And the last way is the personalization of ads. And this can be everything from like the retargeting ad, which is, you know, I shopped this shirt that, uh, you know, I found on Amazon and I'm now seeing ads across the web for that exact same shirt. But it's even more so than that as brands have looked to bring in other information about what consumers are doing across the web into the personalization of ads. And this has to do with things like weather. Uh, It it can get down into granular nature. um, So, such as you know the items I was shopping or items that I have purchased previously, mm-hmm. uh, and include them in the ads, and all of this is impacted by not only the the cookie space, the third party cookie space, but also the cookie window space, which is something we haven't really talked all that much on. So what is what is the cookie window space then? Yeah, so the other part that you have to watch out for is you're looking at the way different browsers and different companies are navigating this idea of privacy is how long the information can be stored. So okay. yeah. It's important for a third-party cookie to exist for the, those types of targeting that we discussed. But how long does it exist? And we see, you know, browsers like Safari significantly shorten the window that they're going to allow a first-party cookie to be available. So this impacts how you can retarget um, mm-hmm. and how long you can retarget. You know, in in the case of Google, you know, their cookie windows were hundreds of days, and now in Apple, you're looking at several days uh, or one day, you know, depending on the type of cookie. So I think this is these are all impacts of this idea of the cookie-less world, whether it's uh, cookie-less in a third-party view or cookie-less in totality. We need to be thinking about how do you retarget? How do you behavioral target? Mm-hmm. What's your future of targeting? What's the future personalization looks like uh, in this new and evolving privacy-compliant uh, world? We keep saying like this term, cookie-less future. Do we actually see, for example, like cookies completely being wiped out from 
are are browsing, specifically third-party cookies? So I personally think third-party cookies likely will be wiped out in totality. First-party okay. cookies, um, to all the ways that we discussed earlier with the personalization and the ability to contain your login information, login information likely will evolve and will become either more privacy compliant, more secure, uh, but in reality function similarly um, because it's one way for your computer and your browser to communicate uh, with the websites that you browse and that you give permission uh, to read and interact with. I, I don't foresee that changing at least in the near future. And I think that's the difference between some of the articles that go all into this idea of a cookie-less future and try to really scare advertisers and brands. And this idea that there is a shift happening across the targeting landscape and you just need to be cognizant of what that means. And while third-party cookies may die, uh, there's still many, many great ways to connect with your consumer and first-party cookies are likely to live on. Okay. Um, well, so like, let's talk about that for a second. So what are some of those ways in which we are thinking about transforming how we do targeting? I mean, obviously, contextual targeting is something that has been around, I would say, forever. And so do we see a shift going back towards this contextual targeting? Uh, one, and then two, like, what are some other ways in which we're starting to think about how we could potentially target um, consumers? So I think you are seeing some advertisers go back to the old contextual targeting, especially those that are uh, privacy first across the board and have this gut reaction that they need to make change immediately. Mm -hmm. But what I think is happening is that contextually targeting across publishers and you know DSPs and SSPs and anyone acting in this universe is getting smarter. And mm -hmm. the way we look at and think about contextual targeting is going to change as we bring in new data points to help influence what it means to contextually target. So it won't just be about what are the words on the page. It's going to be about what's the words on the page, what's the sentiment, what position in the marketing funnel is this consumer likely in, and what are the outside environments like weather, is there other triggers that are going on. And what you see from companies like Google, they're using and at least testing this idea of what's called uh, federated learning cohorts. And it's this idea of instead of looking at an individual user, you're looking at what's kind of uh, oddly called flock or a group of users and similar behaviors. <laughs> and well, you're using machine learning to predict based on the types of content this group of cohorts or flock of users is doing to determine what's their interest based on their behavior. And the models basically learn off of this behavior and can be applied and extrapolated to others that maybe are exhibiting similar behavior, but not that exact behavior. And this is where the, the power and what we know of machine learning uh, is going going to really produce a better way to contextually target and new ways for us to identify, you know, important consumers like those interested in finance and luxury or, you know, those that um, we may not have a as robust first party data on and we need to find some way to target them uh, in this world where third party cookies don't exist. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's where the power of of contextual targeting starts to come alive. So mm -hmm. I'd say, yes, we'll see a shift. It won't be the, the old world contextual targeting. It will be this new uh, machine learning adapted and approved uh, design of contextual targeting, as well as commingling with other uh, types of, 
of audiences that are defined as groups instead of individuals. So um, if you look at the way that personal information or personal data is defined, um, inferences or profiles that you build about people can still be personal information. So I don't think that it's like, oh, well, now we can use this however we want. I think that the concerns are different or the challenges are different. And so when we start talking about um, machine learning and AI being amplified as solutions in our space, then it's really about starting now that now that we're it's not been the Wild West and we're kind of starting to build these from the ground up. How do you right. build in those ethical considerations from, you know, to, to make sure that your algorithms aren't um, discriminating uh, inadvertently, right? To make sure that the assumptions that they're making are not um, are not unethical assumptions to make, right? So I think the challenges are different. And to that point, my kind of broader POV on, on this and, and cookies and the move to identity and all of that is um, I think that it, it has to keep revolving around that people-centered value exchange economy type right framework, right? Because you can have, uh, you can replace cookies with any identifier you want, but it doesn't solve that fundamental, you know, challenge of people want transparency, people want choice. And I think that you can solve for that even, you know, David, to your point with first party cookies, give consumers transparency, educate them on how you're using that data, give them choice so that they can opt in, opt out, however you select it. And and then great. It's it's not like a per se bad thing to use to use those first party cookies, right? The right. challenge with, with the third party cookie space is really that kind of lack of visibility and just how much data is amassed on people via those cookies within those profiles that are built and how little visibility people have had to date. So I think the pendulum's kind of swinging. And and then to to kind of build on that, and I'm I'm sure, David, you'll speak more to um, identity as important from a a data strategy perspective, but it's also important to be able to know or have a single source of truth for whose data you have and who you're sharing it with from from a privacy compliance perspective. Because if, if I reach out and say, hey, like brand, I want you to delete my information and all you have is a cookie ID, how, how are you going to do that? So I think just generally having like a more holistic data strategy that is built around uh, a people first ethos is, mm-hmm. is what the answer is going to be within this subset of, of you know, a multitude of solutions, you know, the, the server side integrations, like the publisher partnerships, you know, um, the privacy sandbox type solutions, etc. I agree with you. Transparency, I think, is one of the things where as long as people are aware of how data is used and you ask them for the permission or just tell them about it, they're much more okay with it. Uh, and then on top of that, we've always talked about like this value exchange of data, right? As, like, as long as consumers are finding value for the exchange and the information, I would say most people are, are going to be okay with it. Where it comes into play that people are, are not okay with it or concerned about it is, for example, when you find out that Facebook, you know, I think pins upwards of like 300 to 400 different identifiers to a person's profile and creates is this an entire you know like library of information around them where it's like oh i didn't know you were doing all that right and that kind of gets into the more like you know 
gray area of 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 what's going on but i know i i agree it's like as long as you kind of tell people exactly how it's going to be used uh and i think apple again started this with that like um nutrition label that's now going to be assigned to every single application that kind of shows how uh and and in what ways your personal information is used or will be used uh is a good start just to get people like educated out there and i think you know that that can solve a lot of the issues to build on that point about apple's changes um, at the same time, so they're now requ- they moved from having like the ability to opt out um, of having your information shared like with the app developers to now having this opt-in model. Obviously, it's been delayed; it hasn't been implemented yet. But it raises the question that that we talked about last time with the cookie banners around: Is this creating f- fatigue? Who's thinking right. about the user experience components of this, and are we actually achieving the end goal? And I think that's where um, there's opportunity now as we look to move past this heavy reliance on third-party cookies to get it right from a user experience <laughs> standpoint um, and and make sure that we're not kind of creating these loops for people to jump through or... Uh, driving them to choices where they're going to make decisions based on their fatigue and not wanting to, to click a banner right, right. versus what they, what their actual choice or preferences. I think we came up with our new startup. Uh, we are going to develop a universal nutrition label for data privacy and management that is super consumer friendly that we can, that we can then license out to all of the big publishers, publications, tech companies uh, as a universal standard. Um, am I overthinking that one there? I mean, are we onto something <laughs> potentially <laughs> billion dollar idea? The challenge that comes up, right. Is, you know, so who, who owns that solution? <laughs> You know, if someone develops standards or develops a solution and it's supposed to be universal, someone obviously owns that. Who's going to own that in a way where it's not monopolistic? And I think that's the exact other side of the coin that we're seeing play out and going to see play out um, in terms of the the move to a cookie-less future. And that's the challenge with, so one of the things that we have to talk about is this idea of clean rooms. And, you know, this idea of clean rooms is this place where you can bring in your first party data and commingle it with a walled garden, in this case, like Facebook or Amazon or Google. And what you're supposed to be able to do is you're supposed to be able to measure your media within this walled garden in a privacy compliant way. And then neither one of you can take data out of this clean room that you didn't bring into it. And so that's the, the dream of this, this idea that's being proliferated around clean rooms. The challenge becomes uh, to Ariel's point is how do you democratize the measurement and you have companies like Nielsen who who's trying to develop a, a clean room for Unilever and you have like the major tech wall gardens like Verizon and Twitter and Facebook and Google saying, oh yeah, sure, we'll participate. But at the end of the day, there's a heavy, heavy burden on Nielsen to do this in a privacy compliant way. And the the risk is there, obviously, from a monetary standpoint, because I'm sure Ariel talked about, you know, the large fines that, you know, brands and advertisers can get uh, levied against them. So 
you know, there's a lot of issues with measurement and clean rooms is one proposed solution. Um, but again, how do you democratize measurement? We saw it with, you know, multi-touch attributions years ago. You wanted third parties to independently measure all of your media and a uh, multi-touch type of way. The odometries got gobbled up and other MTA solutions became irrelevant as the walled gardens refused to let more and more data flow out into a valuable exchange. And so that's where this, this clean room philosophy has begun and it provides great utilization in uh, silos, but still you need to find a way uh, to connect it across the board and companies like Unilever and Nielsen, they have some ideas around it, but it hasn't come to fruition just yet. That is so much information that could go so, so wrong. So, so quick, like actual exposures. I mean, it's like, look at like uh, Equifax, right? Like they got like a breach of like 150 million user profiles, right? Like to me, like that becomes another vulnerability almost essentially. Um, when you're moving that much data around and trying to mix and match it in these clean rooms? Well, so I think it, it's important that the clean rooms, the idea here is to do a few things to allow you to understand the reach and frequency measurement, which is a gap uh, as we look to cookies moving away. You, you have attribution analysis, which you hope to get some insights from meshing data uh, across a clean room together. And then conversion tracking, which is impacted by things like uh, Safari's shortening of windows. So you start having media assigned uh, from an attribution uh, standpoint to different channels than what may or may not have uh, impacted the journey for the consumer to do something along the way. So brands and walled gardens have come together in this idea of building a clean room. And the, the clean room is you know, a place where data can be shared and not activated again. So you, you don't have to worry about um, the for sale piece of some right. of the, the data and privacy laws. And you can glean insights that can be um, projected upon other users and other ways uh, for decision-making purposes, but not necessarily deterministically. It's probabilistic right. uh, in nature. And, and that's where the power of clean rooms come together. And it's supposed to in, ensure a privacy compliant measurement solution. Um, but again, to your point, yes, Equifax obviously is a company that we trusted to house some of our most personalized data and they were hacked. So right. if, if that's the case, you know, how do we prevent that in the future? And I don't, I don't know if there's a perfect solve for that other think, than, yeah. you know, I don't think there is another challenge. And I don't feel like this one's been talked about a ton. Maybe I talk about it because I I'm, I'm nosy. <laughs> but, <laughs> I feel like, um, one challenge that, that I've started to run into just in trying to learn more about how the clean room solutions work is I feel like we're taking these partners word for a lot of things um, in terms of security and privacy, right? So um, I think it makes sense. It, it it definitely sounds like the intention is there to do the right thing, but there needs to be that visibility because at the end of the day, brands that are using those solutions um, are, are entrusting them with, with data. And David, to your point around like, you know, data sold, data disclosed to other parties, how can a brand feel confident in that without having 
sufficient visibility into what's happening to the data that they're sharing with those platforms. And so I think it's definitely moving in the right direction. The efforts Mm -hmm. have good intentions, but they feel like that level of visibility and transparency into what it means, like beyond the top level bullet point of privacy safe um, is going to be an important part of the path forward. Yeah. It's, it's a great call out, right? Because like, like the brands we mentioned, Amazon, Google, Facebook, two of those are the biggest, essentially, advertiser uh, providers, you know, in, in the market. And we know they use data to help, you know, target ads. And so uh, essentially, is it going to be too much of a, of a temptation uh, to not use that in some way to perform to benefit the bottom line? Now, that's the cynical approach to it. I, I prefer to take an optimistic approach where, um, you know, everybody will come together and work towards a solution and that's beneficial for both parties. But, you know, it's a good call out. It is something to be aware of, you know, just follow the money, um, see how those things kind of uh, come come together. One, one thing that we haven't spoken about yet is publishers. How is this going to impact them? Third-party cookies for them is much more than just uh, a way to target yeah, as it is for brands looking to advertise. It is really a way to monetize the content. And you've seen um, most likely through your browsing history and gotten frustrated at the two different ways that brands and publishers are kind of reacting. One is subscription-based content creation where yeah. they're not selling your data and, and you come to this you know paywall and you're like, ugh. I only read the first 50 words. I want to read the rest, but I'm definitely not paying a subscription. And then you have the, the you know, provide your information and basically consent in some non-transparent form because you're just clicking a box that you, you know, you're putting your email address in, you're clicking that box and you're getting access to the content. But now you've just, you know, given your, your email address and all of your data browsing habits away for behavioral targeting and things like that. But that that's the key here is that uh, publishers, um, they need to find a way to interact with consumers and, and, and advertisers and trade back value to each along the way mm-hmm. and still be able to monetize their content. Because you know, and you see this across like Verizon and AOL and Yahoo, they haven't figured out, like each one of their brands is doing something very different. Some, they haven't opted for email uh, usage in terms of to read the content. Others are trying subscription-based ad-free formats and others are, are just empty, you know, content publishers that aren't getting paid. So each brand is, is choosing the way they're going to go, at least test their way in and, to monetize their content is how they're going to pay the editors and the content writers and, and, and really make yep. the whole system work. It's a pickle at the end of the day. It is, it is definitely a pickle. Um, Cause I think as consumers, we find a lot of value in the media and the content that these publishers produce. Um, sometimes we find more value and we actually go ahead and pay for them. Uh, and other times we don't. And I think this goes back to this idea that we've been talking about at the lab of this like media haves and haves nots. You know, those that are able to actually pay for content, get access to the content. uh, And then like that even translates into this idea that like data privacy is a luxury good, where if you have the means, you can pay for access to content and essentially that won't track your data or sell your data or whatever it might be. Whereas if you don't have the means, then you're kind of in the media have nots category where you are looking for those, you know, ad supported solutions. And with that sometimes might come um, 
you know, data collection and, and using your data in ways maybe you don't want to or want it to be used. We've covered a lot uh, in this episode. Uh, and as you're kind of going this conversation and you know as a marketer today as a brand today like what are things that they should be doing or thinking about uh to help prepare for this you know shift that is currently happening uh when it comes to how we as marketers are able to target our our audience across the digital platforms so i can start from a from a privacy perspective um it's really about getting your infrastructure in in check right so okay. If you have a tool right now, we, we use the example of those cookie banners that are um, kind of a one size fits all yes or no to cookies. If you're using something like that, figure out if there are opportunities to provide more granular choice, figure out how to provide the right user experience, figure out how you're going to address identity and how you're going to allow people to manage preferences and have those conversations while you're working with the Davids of the world to align on your data strategy so that you are set up from a privacy perspective uh, to, to move with momentum from a data strategy perspective. And I would just, I would tack on that. You really need to focus on testing the solutions that you're looking at developing across the board and don't wait until cookies uh, have completely gone away, third party or first party to test. You have great environments like Google Sandbox and the ability to you know test different solutions for you. You have these clean rooms that are being worked on and developed. Do you have the right team in place that's actively looking to what it means to use a clean room? What types of data needs to be ingested? What type of insights can you get out? Are you asking the right questions of your partners? If you have a holistic agency solution, meaning you're working with one company uh, across all your marketing needs, are you asking the right questions? Like, what does my retargeting look like on uh, mobile devices in Safari? What's the attribution I'm losing in my analytic platforms because of the changes of ITP? If you're if you're working across holding companies or uh, agencies, are you putting the groups together and really questioning them to build solves for your targeting and analytic needs? Uh, because that's that's one thing I think that we have all of these test cases that exist today and not enough brands are taking advantage of those test cases mm -hmm. to really measure and find solutions and, and impacts to their marketing decisions or how they're going to target and market in the future. And so what I would say is just get out there and build a testing plan, a learning agenda, and, and really push your agencies to deliver on that. Fantastic. Well, Ariel and David, thank you both uh, for coming on Floor 9 this week uh, and just really giving me and all of our listeners the lowdown of what's going on uh, a bit more tactically around this increased consumer uh, interest in data privacy and how it's going to be impacting our media, our marketing, uh, and our advertising. Where can our listeners uh, get in touch with you? If users want to reach out, uh, at Mahalik on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, or uh, you know any social media platform is perfectly fine. Fantastic. Ariel, how about yourself? The same. So on Twitter, Ariel S. Garcia, uh, LinkedIn, email's fine. Well, again, thank you both. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation this week. Um, and listeners, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Scott.